Hey everyone, welcome to The Water Voice. I'm Greg. And I'm Kevin, and we look forward to talking with you about all things water. And startups. And much more. Let's go. Water Voice Podcast, Greg. Excited to uh, start this again. Welcome back. It's, Welcome been, it's back. been a while. Welcome back. It's good to be back. Yeah. You know, this uh, This will be a fun episode. What we've really noticed recently is as we talk to design professionals across the nation, they're really facing unique challenges with regards to their water. And turns out everybody's got a backstory. And that backstory uh, is unique to uh, various cities across the nation. And so, uh, we're starting some work down in Los Angeles, and so uh, we decided to kind of take a peek back at what their water story looks like. The history of water in Los Angeles is unique in and of itself, while at the same time shadows the indistinguishable stories flowing from waterways throughout the United States. Much is documented regarding the California water wars of the earliest, uh, excuse me, the early 20th century. But as we decide to put together a podcast uh, for today regarding LA's water story, I was first led to Chinatown, a 1974 film of Jack Nicholson's famous portrayal of an undercover investigator who finds himself at the center of the California water scandal. Largely based on truth, the film exposes the deep-seated corruption that led Los Angeles to becoming what is now the epicenter of our nation's water crisis. We hope today's podcast will deepen listeners' perspective on water. And through the telling of Southern California's water story, we hope to provide some insight and reflection as to how we can envision a better future for fresh water in Los Angeles. Facing the realities of corruption is part of water's current living process. For Anyone who studies water, deception and manipulation of the precious resource follows every U.S. river bank on every turn. In Los Angeles, the last 250 years has been marred by this corruption, done so in no other way than Hollywood fashion. But before we get into the drama that unfolds, we will begin Southern California's water story in the 11th century which historians mark as the peak of the cultural and territorial expansion of the native indigenous Tongva tribe. Kim Morales Johnson, current director of philosophy of uh, Native American studies at UC Davis, explains the Tongva, uh, the Tongva literally means people of the earth and describes the tradition of the Tongva based on the principle of rising up out of the ground. In fact, there is sacred land uh, just east of Long Beach known as Pafunga, or the place of emergence, where the Tongva people believed the world and their lives began. It was understood that the Tongva tradition holds Mother Earth as the birthplace, and by making sure one is in constant relation with this Mother Earth, there is a respect and reciprocity that goes along with that. The Tongva natives, whose lives depend on their land, also known as Tohongnar, 
meaning the world, uh, shared a special relationship with the earth. They, they understood and appreciated the changing of seasons in their region, and they lived accordingly. For example, in pre-contact California, we'll call it, or prior to colonization, the Tongva understood the surrounding rivers and streams and that they would experience seasonal flooding which provided marshes and wetlands that in turn produced plants such as tule, which would then be used for many purposes, including house and boat construction. They would also nurture the expansion of native plants, such as black sage, as it was understood to prevent things like erosion. The Tongva people built their lives around the surrounding ecosystem, made up of independent villages that were interconnected by trade and culture. The Tongva also understood the connection of these flood events to the surrounding habitat. This included waterfowl, steelhead trout, grizzly bear, kit fox, gray wolf, and and many, many more. The Tongva's interconnectivity to the environment embraced the seasonal widening of the region's rivers during the winter and spring and anticipated a reduced flow by the end of the summer. This was just how Mother Nature intended. But to put this land into perspective, there were dozens of watersheds that made up the Tavognar region, or their world's region. When water falls, watersheds are the land area that channels rainfall and snowmelt to creeks, streams, and rivers, and eventually to outflow points such as, in this case, Los Angeles and the Pacific Ocean. Seasonal weather patterns help to define an area's natural habitat. So this land of roughly 5,000 Tongva natives was largely connected by land uh, between the terrestrial force and the surrounding of the surrounding mountains and the lower-lying waterways of the Pacific Ocean. But what was in between those two of the mountains and the water? Well, this land was largely defined by its riparian zone ecosystem, which is land area with soil characteristics and distinctive vegetation that requires free and unbound water. This is really an important piece to understanding the transition of Los Angeles's land uh, into what we now know as modern day uh, Los Angeles County Basin. Uh, And its transformation has led to many of the current water issues at hand. Just six, for example, just six of these regional watersheds that cover Los Angeles County are now home to roughly 11 million people. So how did we get there? 18th century colonialism that persisted throughout the American occupation marked the end of the ecological balance of the Tongva nation. With this, the displacement of connection between land, water, and people was really lost in translation as the paradise of resources to be harnessed from the region really became the center of settlement exploration. This period of history is why we have land acknowledgments today. This transformation of land, however, did not come without warning. And this research was fun because USC Libraries and the Southern California Coastal Water Research Project has done a great job of preserving photography 
of the LA region from 1850 to 1890, which marks the beginning of California's statehood and offers a depiction of how the original environment functioned before European settlement completely transformed the land. At its center, water. Southern California was wet. Marshes, ponds, pools, dunes, flats, meadows, and thickets. It was evident that the impact water had on the physical layout of the region. These photos also really demonstrate how resilient the Tongva had become at navigating this complex terrain. But the Great Flood of 1862 marks a historical turning point in the history of the land. When the state of California was just 12 years old, a storm lasting 43 days dropped 10 feet of rain on the entire state, flooding entire cities for months. This occurred from what is called a atmospheric river. Yes, you heard that correctly. Essentially, a 43-day river flowing over the state, dropping a water bomb, which destroyed a fourth of the state's properties. The storm forever changed the state, which has now archived a disaster plan created by the United States Geological Survey in preparation for the next big one. They even have a name for the next storm, Ark Storm. Uh, when you get a chance, Google it, A-R-K-S-T-O-R-M. This is a real thing. The flood of 1862 is pronounced to be the worst disaster to ever strike the state of California, and they've had plenty. Given the events of this great flood, it's no wonder the ecological footprint of the land began to rapidly deteriorate not soon after. Water could no, of no greater inconvenience to those who inhabited the land in this period of time, which just so happens to timely mark the beginning of the second industrial revolution in North America. New ways of doing Tremendous opportunities for economic development, a rapid shift in ur urbanization, all of this generating a paradigm change in thought as to what life could look like in the West, something I want to get to later here in the podcast. At this time, you would think there's not one person who would have the mindset of Los Angeles running out of water by 1900, but in fact... This is where the Hollywood story begins. California's began to trade, uh, excuse me, California's began to grade the streets. Over time, many of the inhabited wetlands were destroyed by development or paved over to create, you guessed it, Greg, a network of underground storm drains put in place to get water as far away as possible and as quick as possible. Just send it to the ocean. It was these very pipes that sparked the framework for the beginning of what is known as the California Water Wars. In 1868, three successful businessmen submitted a proposal to LA City Council to develop and operate the city's water system. In turn, they asked for all of the city's water rights and more importantly to them, control over the water rates. They also promised to construct a reservoir for the city, lay 12 miles of iron pipe, install fire hydrants at every major street crossing, and provide free water to public buildings, as well as 
erect an ornamental fountain in the city plaza. The city approved the franchise agreement on a 30-year lease basement, uh, excuse me, a 30-year lease basis. The three men then incorporate the Los Angeles City Water Company. Over time, the relationship between the city and the LA private water company really begins to slip as the system breaks down. 20 years into the lease, this really begins to sour. The relationship begins to sour as portions of litigation are sent all the way to the California Supreme Court. As the lease reaches its term in 1898, it becomes clear to all sides of the table that the privatization of LA's centralized water system needs to be handed back to reliable hands. A negotiation is set in place for the city of Los Angeles to come into an agreement and acquire the water system. In the same year, a man by the name of Fred Eaton is elected as the mayor of Los Angeles. Fred Eaton was the superintendent of the Los Angeles City Water Company. Three years later, Mr. Eaton hires a man by the name of William Mulholland to become the superintendent of the newly founded Los Angeles Water Department. He brings with him uh, to the table more senior employees from his previous employer, the LA Water Company, since the city has no ability to run the newly acquired uh, network of, of systems. Around the same time, the po- uh, population of LA surpasses 100,000 people, nearing the maximum capacity for the natural water supply of the land. Well ahead of the situation, Eaton and Mulholland devise a plan to pull numerous, not quite legal maneuvers in a way to ensure land rights in the Owens Valley, an area that is located just over 200 miles away from Los Angeles. The reason? Water. They began to exaggerate LA's lack of water to the general public in order to gain their support to build an aqueduct. At the same time, they were secretly buying land as private citizens and selling it back to the city for a profit. They even went to the lengths uh, to meet with then-President Theodore Roosevelt to ensure he'd support their, at best, immoral, likely illegal endeavor. Upon this effort, the Los Angeles Aqueduct, a 233-mile connection of pipes, passed the vote in 1905, which would mark the beginning of the wa- a water project that would cost taxpayers roughly $24 million, uh, over $620 million of today's money. The two even had the audacity to tout the success of the vote to the LA Times, convincing Southern Californians of the endless and abounding supply of fresh water. The completion of the aqueduct in 1913 eliminated farming communities in the Owens Valley in the following decade and destroyed the Owens Lake ecosystem, which became completely dry in 1926 due to water diversion. Mulholland's career caught up to him, abruptly ending after a 1928 failure of the St. Francis Dam, which resulted in the death of over 400 civilians and was attributed to a series of human errors 
and poor engineering judgment by McMulland himself. Due to the tremendous loss of life and property damage, some consider the failure of the St. Francis Dam to be the worst American civil engineering disaster of the 20th century. The relocation of water supply sources from various water bodies throughout the West became essentially standard practice uh, for Los Angeles policymakers of the 20th century. The city constructed a second aqueduct that ran roughly parallel to the first aqueduct in 1965. However, due to the Clean Water Act of 1974, the use of these aqueducts have been limited in use, reflecting less of a function of water security for LA and more of an above-ground infrastructure metaphor that exposes the naked truth behind a corrupt past that is normally buried and not seen. Today, the majority of Los Angeles freshwater comes from two major other sources, the Sacramento River Delta and the Colorado River. Some water from the Sacramento River Delta gets to Los Angeles via the now 444-mile-long California Aqueduct. To make a quite long and complicated story very short, the California State Water Rights Board divides up California's aqueduct across the state. Los Angeles doesn't get all of the water as much as it would like to. It really does put into perspective just how wild it is that the second largest piece of water infrastructure in the entire state of California is monopolized by a single city. Engineering marbles at its finest. The rest of Los Angeles water comes from the Colorado River. Every year, California is allowed to take 1.4 trillion gallons from the Colorado, most of which becomes LA's drinking water. Every year, California, mostly Los Angeles, surpasses this limit by about 200 billion gallons. The federal government has kindly asked them not to, uh, and that's where that's at. Aside from the conquest of water that largely makes up the Los Angeles water story, the building out of the city itself is also a story of Hollywood proportion, and now presents LA with a new set of 21st century water issues. The Bologna Creek watershed exemplifies the ecological transformation of most watersheds in the LA region. Being one of the six watersheds in LA County, Bologna Creek is now home to 1.2 million people residing in Santa Monica, Beverly Hills, West Hollywood, and a large portion of downtown Los Angeles. This land inhabited over 8,100 acres of wetlands. Today, Roughly 1,200 of those acres remain. This drastic transformation is relatively quick when looking at the larger period of time that represents the consequences in which we are seeing today. The interruption of LA's natural environment is vast, a term that can also be used to describe the amount of impervious surface laid down in the Los Angeles basin. What quickly became an asphalt and concrete jungle of sorts, the urban sprawl sparked by the Second Industrial Revolution brought with it a water infrastructure system that still functions today as a means to get water away from the city as quick as possible. 
In fact, the river itself is concrete. A second catastrophic flood in 1938 brought more rain to the city in one day than it usually does in an entire year. This wiped out bridges along the LA River and destroyed over 1,500 homes. This event marked really the end of the river itself. Over a 30-year period following the storm, over 3.5 million barrels of concrete were poured into the river, transforming the natural water body from a river into a man-made flood control channel. Some estimate that 60% of LA County watersheds are paved over, including the rivers themselves. When rain hits LA today, the majority of the water is channeled to the city's over 2,000 storm drains and then directly flow over this concrete river channel, which is pushed out to the Pacific Ocean as quick as possible. The freshwater asset is gone before it came. This in a time when drought plagues the city of LA. Just like many cities across the West, climate change isn't necessarily changing the overall annual rainfall yet. What is changing, rather, is the increased intensity of storms when they do in fact occur. So in places like Los Angeles, for example, we mostly read and hear about the impact of drought during the drier seasons and the associated wildfires. But of equal importance is the record rainfall and flood events in the winter months, like that of last December, in which five inches of rain fell on downtown LA, breaking the previous daily record set in 1888. Flooding and pollution issues still exist in a time of considerable drought. So the question becomes is, why don't we use this rain as a freshwater asset? Greg, just like the city of Chicago, along with most major metropolitan cities across the U.S., the repercussions that follow the engineered practices of the late 19th and 20th centuries are having a direct impact on the environments in and around them. Our story comes at a critical time as decisions are being made regarding the future of LA's water. The Green New Deal, Sustainable City Plan, it's a handful, put forth by the office of Mayor Garcetti, calls for the local water chapters to reduce imported water purchases by 50%. They plan to source 70% of LA's water locally, capturing 150,000 acre feet per year of stormwater while reducing potable water use by 25%. Lastly, this also includes recycling 100% of wastewater for beneficial reuse. All of these water goals are set to have a 2035 deadline. In order for these ambitious marks to be reached, it is important that Los Angeles commits to reversing the damage done by channelizing local rivers. Because the region is going through less water uh, to count on from Sierra snowmelt and aqueducts, the importance of holding stormwater as a freshwater asset is more prominent than ever. So the question becomes is how do they get there? The opportunity we see begins with really a thought change, a paradigm shift in our thought. 
similar to that experienced by those who lived the beginning of the second industrial revolution. History has proven thought change has happened before, and we now have the opportunity to see ourselves, being the human race, as a functional being within an ecosystem that is not independent, but interconnected to our surrounding environment. Our nation will be spending more money on infrastructure in the next decade than at any point in human history, this all coming in the face of a changing climate. The opportunity brings forth a narrow window for us to drop the engineering habits of the old and reincorporate how our cities function within the surrounding environment, built on an ecocentric society that can take us places that we have yet to comprehend. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. The last and most famous line from the 1974 film. This really refers to, you can't change things. It's the way things are always meant to be, regardless of how much you tilt at the windmills. The line is about the uselessness of fighting injustice and the overall darkness in the world. This mentality still exists today. Many of those who inhabit Los Angeles describe the LA River as a desolate place, lined with chain-link fences and barbed wire lining its course. Shopping carts and trash litter its channel. Little water flows in the river uh, most of the year, and nearly all that does is treated sewage and oily street runoff. And they're not wrong. But that is not how the Tongva know the river today. Despite the mounds of concrete that flow through 17 cities, their community relies on native stories as a direction to maintain a spiritual, ceremonial, and cultural relationship with these ancestral waters. The Tongva fight to protect and restore what many in Los Angeles consider a dead river. Tongva elder and educator Julia Bogany explains that from our creation, our people, looking out at our land is like looking into a mirror. Our land and our waters are a reflection of who we are, our health, spiritual, mental, and physical. Within Los Angeles, the Tongva community exercises their ancestral obligation to protect and preserve the native land by nurturing a series of natural springs at a cultural center located in the mis- middle of a bustling West LA neighborhood. The eight natural springs occupy a two-acre space that produces 22,000 gallons of water a day. In this protected space, we have the opportunity to embrace the truth of our history, take the time to listen to the land and to the people who still hold its value. In doing so, we may just learn a thing or two about water and about ourselves along the way. Greg. That is a fascinating story. Um, I learned something new every time I'm on these, these water stories with you. The Tongva, I would have never imagined, but here's my question. This paints a picture and Los Angeles now, like many cities throughout the United States, but we're focused on Los Angeles. They face sort of a a reckoning of sorts because they're in, you know, deep trouble in terms of their water situation. So how do we get there? 
um, obviously you can't go back and change the past. You can't change the way things were developed. How do we get there? Uh, you know, it's a complex question. And as I pondered that very thought, I went back to where do we, where do we change the foundation of thought and really why I believe that's so important is because we have to pull ourselves back into our surrounding environments. We really had a commanding conquer mentality on how we observed land. Um, no feat was um, unengineerable in the 19th and 20th century. And that's really proven to backfire. And now that we're facing uh, CO2 emissions that are changing these weather patterns into more extreme situations, the only real solution within that thought process is building resilient infrastructure. And Greg, I say it all the time, but to me, resilient infrastructure is infrastructure that has the ability to handle the capacity of these extreme weather scenarios. And one of the main reasons I highlighted what happens in LA in the winter is because it is um, creating issues in LA with regards to water that are just as bad as the fires. And so a change in thought process and building resilient infrastructure is a fantastic start to an unexplored territory of infrastructure in the 21st century. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. I did not realize that they got five inches of rain um, in December. Was that the number? And it, it um, was five inches of rain in a day. And I believe the entire month was 9.4. Okay. So five inches in a day and that set a record. And yet they're still sitting in a scenario where they're facing extreme drought. And we all know kind of what their stated goals are. They want to reduce imported water purchases. They want to capture 150,000 acre feet per year. And then that happens. And I guess I'm wondering where they're at with some of these stated goals. It's a very interesting scenario. And, you know, as much as I hate to bring this into the picture, there is a political environment now that's involved. There are two potential mayors. Now, I would state right now that they're the most unpopular of the group, uh, but are very focused on uh, this interconnection back into the environment, focusing on our relationship with the LA River. How do we keep raindrops in neighborhoods? Uh, And then there's also um, some more popular candidates in which uh, are saying, you know, we need to destroy the red tape. We need to develop much more quickly to sustain our economy here down in Los Angeles. The silver lining is that there's truth to both sides, Um, but you can't have vehicles like this, which happened in December. And I know it's a podcast, but the LA Concrete River had vehicles flowing down the concrete channel. Wow. This stuff can't happen. And we have to be aware now, regardless of our stance on political climate change, that these extreme weather patterns will affect every community, especially in the West. Yep. Because extreme weather patterns are now the new definition. I thought you stated it really well during uh, during the story. Uh, I can't remember how you put it, but okay, we're not seeing national rain averages change all that much, but when they come, they're more extreme. And that's exactly what happened in Los Angeles. 
and I couldn't agree with you more. I want to talk though about this is interesting, William William Mulholland, because he is in you know cast as a villain in some in some circles. But if you go back to the history of Los Angeles, um, you know he, you had kind of tragedy, and then he was ran out basically with the bridge failure. But here's a question for you: Do we need? Does Los Angeles need? or any city, name your city, do they need more of that pioneering type mentality to change now, to fix the ills of the past? And what I mean by that was, it's a fascinating read on him. Um, He came from Ireland. He was totally self-taught. He served in the Navy at the age of 15. The story was, at some point, he got with his brother, Hugh, and they tried to get to California from New York on a ship. Um, in Panama, they had to, uh, disembark. They got stuck. They had to walk 47 miles through the jungle. So anyway, the point is like, this guy was hard scrabble, yeah. self-taught pioneer that came in and he has, you know, a street named after him. The irony of that, I have to look into this, but Jack Nicholson, you talked about him in the movie Chinatown. I think Jack Nicholson has a home on Mulholland drive. Yeah, right. So anyway, it's crazy. Right, but to right. think about it, this guy goes down in historical lore in Los Angeles. And so my question is, do we need more of that pioneering type of ingenuity to get through this? A hundred percent. And I think the big difference between what existed in the 19th and 20th century versus what needs to happen today is we don't need to centralize our freshwater assets have our communities take a deep breath and lessen the burden from these central grid systems. You know, you're not, these issues that occur in LA, completely plastering concrete in a river channel is irrevocable. You know, I, I don't know if that river ever fully recovers, but what you can do is protect stormwater from just completely running out into the Pacific Ocean unwarranted and not collected. Uh, as a resource. So pioneering strategies of today's, uh, today's day in the 21st century, in my belief, will occur in decentralized fashion, allowing the opportunity for engineers to empower communities to control their own assets. It's much different in terms of thought process. This whole bigger, go bigger, go home can still occur in pioneering fashion, but it needs to impact the neighborhoods and communities in which they are affecting. That to me is the thought change that we really want to provoke, especially down in Los Angeles. Yeah, I think um, you're right on the money with that. So in the end, it's like we need to have this pioneering mentality, but it needs to fit for everyone and every stakeholder that has um, any part of you know clean water um, needs. And, and obviously that's everyone. So in the end, and the other thing is we need to do it in a way that, you know, we're not going and annexing land and, and, and privately, quietly buying land and selling back to the city and things like that. So they were shrewd business people and, and, uh, it's interesting. That whole story is so fascinating. Um, but I agree with you. I think we need some of that pioneering mentality, uh, question for you, cause you're, you've been following this pretty closely. Where do you think this sits? Um, politically on the political totem pole for the candidates running uh, to be mayor in LA? 
yeah, there's um, difficulty. That's a difficult question, Greg, because there's two really varying sides as to how uh, infrastructure is solved from a development standpoint. I understand from a red tape perspective, reducing the time it takes to complete projects is really important in the face of a changing climate. Having said that, uh, trying to reduce the red tape behind um, areas that do really positively affect the environment, I don't think uh, create uh, positive um, attributions for our, our communities. So it's like anything, a silver lining and it's somewhere in the middle. But uh, I actually want to trace back to really fully answer your question, the great floods of 1862 and why I thought that was such a paradigm shift in the land historically there. You talk about 10 feet of water falling on an entire state. Greg, there was flooding in Utah, Oregon, all the way up to Idaho from that storm. Wow. So it was just a river that sat on a 43-day period above the land. Um, that will re-change your thought process, right? If you're an elected official of a new state and you have that happen, do you have a positive outlook on water, rainwater? You know, I, I don't blame them for building the engineering structures that they did because flooding was more of an issue than it was for water conservation. Mm -hmm. So it was this underbelly, uh, this underbelly issue of not having enough water amongst too much water mm -hmm. that presents the current problem we face today. The only way to unwind that politically, uh, engineering, uh, nonprofit, community citizens is to unwind it to its core, and there needs to be an interconnection to the environment, an ecocentric look as to how the LA Basin builds out, just like communities across the United States, is really the only way we solve the problem. Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm really excited about the future because I think that now we have, we're entering an era now where we have the technologies, we have the capabilities, you have really smart people, and you have people that are conscious about this type of stuff. And so it makes me believe that, you know, if we can, and I, I understand there needs to be some oversight, obviously, and there should be some red tape. Um, so things are developed properly, but I can't help but be optimistic because I see, and every day, you know, we're, we're made aware of new technologies, whether it's in, you know, IOT sensors, um, obviously, you know, I'll tout our horn, what we're trying to do with new types of permeable concrete and new ways to actually design streets and sidewalks. I think all these things are coming together um, at a time when we need them uh, more, most drastically. And, and there will need to be some flexibility on the part of elected officials to, in, in a sense, you know, eliminate some of the red tape so that to your point, this gets done in a much quicker, more efficient way because what's coming, you know, we, we don't know, like these rain events are totally unpredictable. And and that's nobody knew yeah. five inches was going to come in a day in Los Angeles. What a key point as well. And our hometown of Spokane is no exception. Uh, last year we experienced uh, uh, one series of rain events over a three day period uh, affected 53% of our annual overflows to our Spokane River. Jeez, I didn't know that. Three-day period created wow. over half 
of our combined sewer stormwater overflow. So it's not so much about engineering practices for a quote unquote 100, five year, thousand year design storm. Redefine it as how can we create resilient infrastructure for the most extreme scenario? And that I think is the ticket. Yeah. You know, which the only way to really do that is decentralizing things. We have a huge table with a thousand pieces. Why not create 30 different puzzles of 20 pieces than to try to put the whole thing together and say it's pass fail? Yes, 100%. Decentralization. Well, this was super fascinating. Um, I'm just going to give you my plug and say keep, keep doing these. I love when you dive into, you know, the history of some of these cities and their water issues and their water triumphs. In some cases, I learned something new every single time. And, um, I don't have any other questions at this point, but this was awesome. Appreciate you, Greg. My last comment, just in terms of land acknowledgements, you know, usually this, uh, these land acknowledgements, they occur at the beginning of a podcast, a presentation, but I do want to acknowledge, although we are not on the land, of the Tongva uh, indigenous people. Uh, We exist on the land of the Salish. We recognize that here in Spokane and our connection to the Spokane River. Shout out to Jerry White of the Spokane River Keeper and the work that's being done. There's a lot of momentum there. But the Tongva really represent what it means to be a community. They had a hundred different villages that spanned all across Southern California. 5,000 to 9,000 people that traded their goods and were never affected by major flooding events. They just knew they happened, right? It's amazing. So why can't we say, even though there's multi-million, you know, more, 20 million, 23 million people in Southern California, can we learn from them and create societies that are independent, but interconnected and functioning in a much better fashion. And I think if we can just throw that out there, uh, we begin to change the thought. Yep, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Kevin. This was fun. Yeah, thanks, Greg. You bet. Thank you all for listening to The Water Voice. This podcast can be found on most major podcasting platforms. Yeah, we greatly appreciate all of you in the Aquaport community. So please continue to download and subscribe. Hey, uh, give us a five-star review where you can. And uh, we really look forward to seeing you next time.